Welcome to tonight's event. I'm Dr. Jacob Reneker, Scholar-in-Residence for the John A. Woodso Foundation and the host of this Come Follow Me Interfaith Conversation Series. One of the goals of the Woodso Foundation is to inspire members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to engage in meaningful interfaith dialogue and community outreach in order to strengthen our local communities around the world. For our conversation this evening, we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments from a Jewish perspective, focusing mostly on Exodus chapters 19 and 20, though I'm sure there's lots that will get drawn in to inform that. Finally, you can find video replays of all our events, along with links to podcast recordings of this Interfaith Conversation series at www.widsofoundation.org. Our guest tonight is Rabbi Ilana Schwartzman. Rabbi Ilana is a third-generation rabbi and serves uh, Beth Havarim Shir Shalom in Mawa, New Jersey. Before coming there, she spent eight years at Congregation Kol Ami in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is where I first met her. She studied Hebrew at Ben-Gurion University in Beersheba, Israel, and was ordained from Hebrew Union College and Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati, Ohio. Rabbi Alana views the contemporary synagogue as a home for prayer, spirituality, social action, study, leadership, and engagement. Her joy lies in the interplay between intellectual Judaism and personal relationships. She also believes that music is a powerful vehicle through which we can connect to each other and God. Right now, she resides in Hillsdale, New Jersey with her husband, Art, and their young daughter. So, Rabbi Ilana, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It is such a joy to be able to be here with you and to talk a little bit about some of our shared tradition and ways that we interpret. So as you mentioned today, we're talking about the Ten Commandments, also known as Aseret Hadzibrot, which in Hebrew means the Ten Declarations or the Ten Sayings. So there are a couple of things that I should probably say right off the bat before we dive into this. So I'm a reform rabbi. There are different traditions in Judaism that align on a spectrum from the most observant to probably, I guess, you know, the least observant, which has to do with how people practice their Judaism or a level of orthopraxy. And then there are different traditions, different ways of believing. And people know about Orthodox Jews and Reform Jews and conservative Jews. And as far as I'm concerned, concerned, it's all ways to try to relate our tradition, to relate to each other, and to relate to God. One of the major differences, I would argue, about Reform Judaism versus, for example, Orthodox Judaism is that from an Orthodox perspective, the Torah, uh, the five books of Moses, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as well as the entirety of the Tanakh, which includes the prophet's and the writings, as well as commentaries on those were all given at Sinai, the moment that we will talk about today, and they are all the word of God. From a reform perspective, I believe that while they may be divinely inspired, they are not necessarily the word of God, and there's a lot of give and take between modernity and the text itself, and certainly there's a lot of Jewish commentary over the centuries that helps us understand how best to relate to that text. And we continue to have a voice in that conversation and that interpretation. That said, we are going to be looking specifically at the Ten Commandments. And as I mentioned, they're not specifically referred to as mitzvot, which is the word commandments, but rather as aseret hadzibrot, the Ten Sayings. Jewishly, when we look at the Torah, we understand that there are 613 mitzvot or commandments. They are referred to as Tariag mitzvot. And Tariag is just, it's an acronym, I guess. The different letters represent numbers. And Tariag just means 613. We break them down into positive commandments and negative commandments. There are a lot of different ways to think about them. There are also commandments that we understand that only get followed in the land of Israel versus commandments that are applicable universally. And there are commandments that we still see as very much dictating and telling us how to best live our best lives. And there are ones that we look at and go, hmm, I'm not sure whether that is more historically 
spiritually motivated or more divinely motivated? And those are all important questions for us to ponder. You'll see here, there's a picture of a pomegranate. And just to say that one of the legends, one of the lore in Judaism is that every pomegranate has 613 seeds in it. And that is to remind us of the number of mitzvot. I personally have not counted them. If that's a project somebody wants to take on, I will fully support it and be interested to know how many seeds you find in your pomegranate. Here we have the two tablets of the law, which is how we often think about the Ten Commandments, five on each tablet. Hebrew reads from right to left. So a lot of the text that I will be showing today will read from right to left. This is not the entirety of the commandments. These are abbreviations to let us remember. So for example, if you've been studying this, you will know that this says anochi. This is a hey with a with a chukchik is the technical term for it, which is a way of representing the name of God without writing it out. So it says anochi aronai lohecha, I am the Lord your God, lohi yedlecha, elohim acherim. And, it, and these are just sort of a quick jog of your memory. The assumption is that you know these commandments. And so they don't write them out in their entirety. They just sort of jog our memory. The lead up to the commandments comes from Exodus 19. And so we begin with, to a certain degree, the story of Revelation. Again, I'm starting on the right-hand side. On the third month or the third new moon after the Israelites had come out, had gone forth from the land of Egypt, on that very day, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. And this tells us a little bit about their journey. But it's important to note that they've just come out from Egypt. They are unfamiliar with their surroundings. They're fairly unfamiliar with God. They're pretty unfamiliar with themselves as a community. And one of the arguments that commentators will make is that one of the things that the giving of the commandments does is it gives us an ethic. It gives us a set of values by which we can form a community, by which we can have an identity, by which we can live and self-govern, which was sort of foreign to the way we were in Egypt. So they journeyed from Rephidim to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. Sometimes you'll hear this described as desert, but if you have been to this wilderness, you know that it's not the rolling deserts of sands that people picture. But if you've been to Utah or maybe even some of the deserts of Arizona, it's much more like that. They encamped in front of the mountain and Moses went up to God. Just a little bit about this translation. When they say Elohim, they say God. When it says yod vav it says yod vav And that is to not use necessarily the word Lord, which may have a masculine connotation to know that God is non-gendered. And so it tries to be a gendered in full text. Anyway, so Adonai calls to Moses from the mountain saying, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and declare to the children of Israel. Those are the same thing. Jacob, it's your house. No, I'm kidding. But um, but this is just a parallelism. It's saying the same thing. The house of Jacob, the children of Israel, but reminding us of our history of who we are and where we came from. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to me. One of my favorite images, this notion of the Israelites riding on eagle's wings, which is fascinating because if you are trudging through the wilderness, unsure of where you're going, where your next meal is coming from, or how you are going to fare, this notion of soaring on eagle's wings is a really beautiful metaphor for what's going on. If you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. So this is the beginning of a covenant, right? If you do this, then I in return. Indeed, all the earth is mine, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're going to come back to this sentence a little bit later because Jews and Judaism have this really interesting push and pull between the notion of chosenness, between what it means to be special and also wanting to be like everybody else, to be able to be integrated. And what does it mean to have a God that creates everything, but that may choose favorites and how uncomfortable is that? And so we're going to come back to that a little bit later. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses comes and he summons the elders of the people, which is interesting, not everyone, but the elders, and put before them all that Adonai had commanded him. And all those assembled as one, right? They're in unison, which is 
<laughs> I was going to make a joke about Jewish congregations, but I think it's probably true of any congregation. There is never a time in history that we all agree. So the fact that they're all speaking in unison sort of tells us that this is almost fairy tale like in its telling. And they say, all that God has spoken, all that Adonai has spoken, we will do. Nase. And this rings in our ears. Nasevenishma comes later on, and it's the people saying, we will do and we will hear. And it ends up being a very important phraseology that we don't fully understand what we're doing. First, we're going to do it. We're going to try it out. And then we're going to hear it. Then we're going to understand it. Because without the action, without trying it, without testing it, we don't actually understand it fully. Adonai says to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and trust you ever after. And then Moses reported the words to Adonai. And Adonai said to Moses, go down to the people and warn them to stay pure today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. Okay, so we're doing all of this. We're getting ready. The people is about to freak out, by the way. God is going to speak to them and they can't handle it. Right. So on the third day, as morning dawn, clearly there's something going on with threes here. We have a third month. We have a third day, which interestingly, Jewishly, we would expect it to be usually four is more of a typological number for us. But we do have three patriarchs. We, we do look at the numbers and try to figure out what's going on. But anyways, on the third day, as morning dawned, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the mountain and a very loud blast of the horn and all the people who were in the camp trembled. They thought they were ready. They said, we're ready. We're going to do this. The people witnessed the thunder and the lightning and the blare of the horn and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance. And essentially they say, Moses, you do it. We can't handle it. It's too much for us. It's too immense for us. So Moshe el ha'am likrat ha'elohim min And this I said in Hebrew because I want to come back to it also. Moses led the people out of the camp toward God and they took their places at the foot of the mountain. Okay. All of this happens. We're going to get the Ten Commandments. If we're actually going to get to anything beyond reading the text, we need to, to sort of dive in. So Rashi, who is one of the most influential Jewish commentators in history, he is an 11th century Jewish scholar in France, interprets this. And he goes back to that Tachtit Hahar, they stood at the foot of the mountain, but he translates it differently. He says the people were standing not at the base of, but literally beneath the mountain. So this is a midrash. This is a story interpretation where he takes this word, tachtit, which can either be at the foot of or beneath. The word can mean both things. And Rashi says that the drash is not only based of linguistics, but an agadah, a story in the Talmud, which is a text that dates back probably to, it gets codified, it gets put into place, written down and closed around 500 CE. And where Rabbi Avdimi, elsewhere called Dimi, Barchama says, the Holy One, blessed be God, lifted the mountain over them like an inverted barrel, a gigit, and said, if you will accept the Torah, all will be well. But if not, this will be your burial place. So what this rabbi in the Talmud is saying is that literally God held Mount Sinai over the heads of the people and said, you're going to accept my commandments, right? which is absurd. How can you accept commandments? How can you accept something? Essentially, if you're being extorted, if you get told that if you don't accept it, this mountain is going to be dropped on your head. So we have this midrash that comes out of this word, and it goes back all the way to 500, but keeps being brought up. And we're going to hold that parallel to another midrash, to another interpretation. So this is another compilation of writings, a different one, where it says that God appeared to give the Torah to Israel, but it is not Israel alone to whom God appeared, but to all of the nations. First, God went to the children of Esav, and God said to them, will you accept the Torah? And they said, what's in it? And God says, you shall not murder. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. Murder is our thing. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second, because clearly, 
part of what this midrash is doing is it's talking smack about all of the people around them and explaining why Israel is better, which is not an incredibly politically correct thing to do. And I want to focus less on the aspect of who are we talking smack about and what other peoples don't we like and more about what makes Israel distinct from them, although there is a lot to be said and a lot to be discussed in this question, again, of chosenness and specialness, right? So God goes to the children of Ammon and Moab, will you accept the Torah? What does it say? You shall not commit adultery. Oh, no, 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 no. That's our thing. God goes to the children of Ishmael, will you take the Torah? What does it say? Don't steal. Stealing is our thing. There was none among all of the nations to whom God did not go and speak and knock at the door, asking if they would accept the Torah. Here too, Israel accepted the Torah with all its explanations and inferences, but the sons of Noah could not even abide by the seven mitzvot that they took upon themselves. Again, so part of what's happening here is we've got these two stories. This one says, it's not so much that God chose us as God tried to choose everybody else and we stepped up to the plate versus this other story that says that God held this mountain over our head and said, you're going to accept this. So we have these two completely contradictory stories that fit together to tell us about ourselves, about who we are when we fully accept Torah and about our relationship with God, which is somewhat accepting and somewhat coercive and somewhat beautiful and magical and loving and somewhat terrifying. And all of this is to say that it's complicated and it's hard to accept the commandments and it's hard to figure out our place in the world and who we are. And I really think that the diversity of interpretations here helps us to suss out even better how we understand ourselves. And I think that our tradition would be less beautiful and less meaningful without both of these stories talking to each other. Now, often when I teach this, people will say, but are they true? And what they mean when they ask this is, did it happen? Did God hold the mountain over the people of Israel? Did God go to all of these other people and ask them? And the answer that I give them is they both contain truth. Whether or not they are historically accurate is less important to me than the narratives that they tell us about ourselves. Were we perfectly willing to accept? Maybe we were willing to step up and say, yes, we will do this. And maybe we were terrified out of our gourds. And the truth is that people don't feel just one thing at a time. And we can step up. I'm sure that many people, for example, on your wedding day, right? You went there and you knew, yes, I want to be here. And maybe at the same time, you were scared out of your mind. This is my whole life ahead of me, right? It's that same feeling of push and pull. And to a certain degree, the giving of the Torah is a betrothal. It is this consecrated moment between God and the people of Israel. And that's how we understand it. I want to stop here for just a second and see if there's anything, Jacob, that you want to remark on and ask before we dive into the commandments themselves. This is great. I think I'll save this question for the latter part so you can get through sure. the 10 commandments there. But about, I think this really interesting kind of put a pin in that idea of kind of two traditions that are existing in parallel with each other that are very different and how the Jewish community navigates those very real differences. So let's, let's we don't have to talk about that right now. Let's just put a pin in that and maybe sure. circle back to we'll that part of the question. It. Brilliant. So what we have on the left side of the screen is actually a piece of Torah. So if you were to open up a scroll that we have in the synagogue, this is what the Hebrew looks like. For those who are not familiar with Hebrew, you will notice that, you know, you can see the letters. Again, it reads from right to left. You'll see spaces. These spaces are one of the places that you know where you are in the Torah, by the way, because there are no page numbers. But to point out, there are no vowels in this and there are no trope marks. Teachings on how to chant this. Traditionally, Torah is chanted and that there is a tradition by which the Masoretic text is a tradition by which we understand how to read this text, but that adding vowels so the text is already a mode of interpretation and that translating is a mode on top of that of interpretation. So the first thing I want you to do is I want you to think about in your head, 
what the first commandment, as you understand it to be, what it says. If you can, try to count out where do the commandments start, where do they go, and then I'm going to walk you through the Jewish tradition of it. It says, Elohim et kol hadvarim God spoke these words, saying, I, Adonai, am your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. We're going to talk again a little bit about this later, but there is an understanding for other faith traditions that include this in their sacred texts, that that is actually a preface. Jewishly, that is the first commandment. The other thing that I want to point out here, and when we talk about interpretation, I think it's really important. When we see, for example, the word Mitzrayim, okay, we translate it as Egypt. There is an incredible, incredible tradition about the interpretation of that word because Tsar, the root of that word Mitzrayim, means narrow. I brought you out of the narrow place. And to that end, we are always being brought out of narrow places. We all know what it means to feel crunched by life, to feel pressured. And so this continues to be relevant. And when we talk about Israel receiving the tablets, receiving the Torah, receiving the commandments at Sinai, there's a tradition that says that every Jew who ever has been and every Jew that ever will be stood at Sinai that day. We were all there at the mountain. And so we all received this revelation which is incredible and a very big deal. And occasionally when people are really feeling very, very spiritual or very irreverent, one or the other, they'll say, I remember you that day, right? So we, we have that tradition as well. You shall have no other gods beside me. And you may notice that there's a star here. Lo this is in the singular masculine, just to point it out. So is that only meant for men? a commandment that applies to everyone. We understand it universally, but I just want to point out that the language is not universal. You shall not make for yourself a sculptured image or any likeness of what is in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, your God, Adonai, am an impassioned God. It's a really interesting translation for that word as well. Impassioned, sometimes you hear jealous, sometimes you hear zealous. And just to think in our heads, what does it say about God, how we translate that word? Visiting the guilt of the parents upon the children, upon the third and the fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keeping my commandments. Again, just to go back, if it says that we're not to make for ourselves a sculptured image, is that to worship or is that any image of what's in the heavens above and the earth below? What does that say about figurative art? In the Muslim tradition, for example, they take this very, very seriously and most of the artwork is fashioned out of words or it's very abstract. So just to point out again, a very different interpretation there. This visiting the guilt of the parents upon the children is one that is very uncomfortable for a lot of people also. Just to share the interpretation that really resonates with me probably the strongest is that the third and the fourth generations impact us whether they want to or not. If we think, for example, about alcoholism, we know that sometimes it will skip a generation and the third generation will be the one that has to contend with it again. And so whether or not this is God actively being impassioned or passively understanding that our behavior impacts the generations to come, again, is an interesting question. And so it uh, leads us to wonder how active is God in history versus how active are our beliefs on influencing the generations to come. You shall not swear falsely by the name of your God, Adonai, for Adonai will not clear one who swears falsely by God's name. Okay, so if you're going to promise, if you're going to make a vow, if you use God's name, be serious about it. So, Zechor uh, Shabbat, this is interesting. And the reason that this is interesting is because it is different in two places in the Torah. The Ten Commandments are said twice in the Torah. We're looking at the section in Exodus. Here it says Zachor. Later on in the Torah, when it is repeated in Deuteronomy, it will say Shamor, keep the Sabbath. So, just to point out that our tradition says actually God is special in that God can say multiple things. We can hear the same things at once, and both things are accurate that God said Shamor Vezachor at exactly the same time. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of Adonai, 
you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or any of your cattle or the stranger who is within your settlements. If earlier we had a question about how universal the text is, one of the reasons we may have that question is because here it is so specific about to whom this commandment applies, that we have to be so sure that everybody, men, women, animals that do work for us, the people who live among us that may not be like us, everybody has to follow this. One of the interpretations of this text that I love is that we always think that the command has to do with the Sabbath, but that there's another command in this also, which says that six days you shall labor. I find this fascinating, right? That do you get to rest if you don't work for six days? And now that we're talking about in some communities, a four-day work week, how are we defining work exactly? But okay. For in six days, Adonai made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and then rested on the seventh day before Adonai blessed Shabbat and hallowed it. And also, of course, this question of when is Shabbat? In Hebrew, it's not a question because Shabbat is the Hebrew word for Saturday, but we know that that is also not universally the case among people who study this text, who read this text, who follow this text. And some of it is intentionally to be contrary. They keep this day, we'll keep that day, right? And to know that we are separate traditions with a similar or the same text. My favorite, now that I have a daughter, honor your father and your mother that you may long endure in the land that your God Adonai is assigning to you. This one is interesting because I don't live in that land. I'm a Jew in diaspora. So is this saying that something's going to change if I don't honor my parents? Well, one of the ways that we understand this also is that it's speaking to a community of people and not necessarily to individual people. There's also this wonderful question of what does it mean to honor our parents? If they run up debts, are we obligated to them? And what if these parents, God forbid, are abusive? What is our obligation to them then? And there's a lot of interpretation about this that says our obligation in terms of honoring our parents means making sure that they have a good burial interestingly, and that is sort of the bare minimum for kabed. And also just to point out here, it doesn't say love your parents, it says honor them. And that that is a lively debate and worth thinking about as well, what the difference is between loving and honoring our parents. You shall not murder. This is a nice short one. Just to point out, and I'll come back to this again later. It says, you shall not murder. There are a lot of traditions that translate this as you shall not kill. That's not what the text says in the Hebrew. And it's a very different command. You shall not murder versus you shall not kill. And elsewhere in the Torah, there's a fair amount of commanding about war. So to put that in there and to try and calibrate our minds around that as well, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? Don't lie about them, about what they did or didn't do. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or ass or anything that is your neighbor. And the question is always, what does covet mean? Because most of us know it from this context. And I have spoken to biblical scholars who believe that covet is actually you're not allowed to borrow those things. And that a lot of this is actually, if we look at these commandments, a lot of it is actually about theft, right? I'll come back to this. But if God is not God, then you are stealing the identity of God. If you make another image of God, then again, you are stealing what fundamentally belongs to God. And we can go into this, right? Remembering the Sabbath is again about ownership and about what belongs to God. That day is God's day, for example. But I put this up here to show you that these 10 commandments get counted differently in different traditions. And sometimes, for example, in America, there is a debate, a question about should we have the 10 commandments in the public sphere? And in the Jewish world, the question is whose version of the 10 commandments are we going to put in the public sphere because we count them differently. Are you going to put them in the Hebrew? Whose translation are you planning to use? A teacher of mine, Rabbi David Saperstein, likes to say that having the Ten Commandments in the public sphere will induce morality about as much as having Bibles in hotel rooms. But that's a, a story for a different day. And I just think that it's hilarious and very poignant. So just to put that out there. And again, to point out that this is murder, but then some of these contexts, they would count it as kill.
Then there's a 12th century Spanish philosopher. So after Rashi, Rabbi Abraham ben Chia. And one of the things that he does is that he tells us that the Ten Commandments are fundamentally about relationships, right? That there are commandments that have to do with relationships between man and God. So the second, third, and fourth between person and their family, the people that they're responsible to that are familial relationships, the fifth, sixth, and seventh. And then Ben Adam Lechavero, between a person and the greater world, the person and his fellow, that is the 10th, the ninth, and the eighth. But there are also ideas that have to do with thought, speech, and action. It's a very strange thing, Jewishly, to tell somebody that they can or cannot think something. We are non-doctrinal. Generally, when I talk to people, what that means is we have more or less one rule that we expect of people if they are Jewish, and that is that there will be one or fewer gods that you believe in. There are atheist Jews. What there are not is polytheistic Jews, right? That's fundamentally where the line gets drawn. And so to tell people what they're going to think is a really complicated thing. But is it true, right, that fear of God that honoring parents and not coveting are commandments of thought, that the third, sixth, and ninth have to do with speech, and that the fourth, seventh, and eighth have to do with action. And these are really ways that we try to wrap our mind around these commandments. You'll notice that the first is not on here. I am the Lord, your God. That is a commandment that says, potentially, believe that that is what that command is saying. And whether or not that is something that we can demand, that can be demanded of us, it's a, it's a pretty profound question to tell somebody that they have to believe something, whether or not they feel it, whether or not they have proof of it. And so for most of the Jewish community, as far as I'm concerned, we sort of set that aside. And it's about our behavior and the way that we relate in the world that defines us as Jewish rather than the way we think or how we conceive of things. I do want to share that there is a story in the in Pirkei Avot, which is the very beginning of the Mishnah. So a story that probably comes from one or 200 CE, well, when Rabbi Hillel is around, so probably around 100 CE, that these two rabbis, these two schools of thought, Hillel and Shammai, they go to Shammai first and say, I want to be Jewish. Teach me everything there is to know about Torah while standing on one foot. They say, and I'm going to paraphrase here. Shammai says, you're being ridiculous, beats them with a measuring stick and says, go bother somebody else. And they do. They go to Rabbi Hillel of the competing academy and says, I want to be Jewish. Teach me everything there is to know about Torah while standing on one foot. And Hillel says, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. I think this is significant for two reasons. And again, I think that there are two ways of reading this, one with absolute piousness and seriousness and one with absolute sarcasm, which I love and I think is a very Jewish way of reading things. The serious one is really that it's fundamental, right? Behave well in the world. If you don't want it, don't do it to anybody else. The Torah will teach you the details of that, but fundamentally treat other people the same, which again, as much as we've been talking about chosenness is such a fundamentally interesting question. The more snide way of reading it is that he's talking about Shammai. Shammai, you pain in the tuchus. If you didn't want to answer the question, why would you send him to me? It's hateful to you. Don't do it to me either. And I love this reading. I love that there's a personal and a universal, that there is this piety and also this playfulness, which I think fundamentally is a very traditionally Jewish way of looking at the text. I have made it through my presentation piece. I'm going to stop presenting for a moment and invite questions, thoughts, all of that sort of thing. Thank you so much, Rabbi Ilana. This has been phenomenal. We do have a question already from the audience about the metaphor can be used about marriage, right? Kind of relationship between Israel and God as kind of sort of marriage, one way of looking at that relationship. And so our audience member asked your thoughts on this question, you know, how can a young person at birth or at 13 years old know enough to marry the God of Israel? You know, so we're typically married at 20-ish or so. Why would God ask this sort of big commitment at 
such an early age. From your perspective, and maybe from the different perspectives that you've heard about circumcision or mitzvah, right? So either of those, what do you do with that in terms of kind of the choice to enter into a relationship or to be part of that people? Well, I think it goes back to a certain degree to this question of the revelation One might argue that it's between God and Moses, but that's not really the Jewish understanding. It's the the entire people Israel is there to receive the Torah. And that covenant is not really made individually between a person and God until later. It's made between a people and God. And what happens at a circumcision is you're being invited into the covenant, that you're being included in the covenant, not that you're making a choice. Certainly, there is more of an argument to be made that says that at 13, you are opting in. But the truth is that for B'nai Mitzvah, and certainly the young folks that I work with, they don't know enough. It is, I think, going back to that, let's do it. Let's feel it out. Let's see what our commitment to our community looks like. And as we move forward in our life, The definition of that commitment and the way that we respond to God ends up looking very different so that before the age of 13, we are in the process of being educated in how to be a part of a covenant. At the age of 13, we are then obligated to the responsibilities of that covenant. And then every day for the rest of our lives, I would argue just as we do in a marriage, we figure out how to relate to God, how to relate to the community. And that covenant, it's not that the covenant is changing. It's that the way that we respond to it, the way that we interpret it is constantly changing. And a bar mitzvah is not an end point. It's an invitation to figure out from then on, how do we as individuals respond? So I don't think that it's the, yes, now you're in. I think that we are constantly being educated on how to be a part of. That's interesting. Yeah, because the question itself kind of presupposes this is kind of an individual relationship between a person and God. Whereas the way that you're kind of talking about this is this covenant being presented to an entire community. And that's a different way, right, of looking at a relationship, kind of a communal relationship with God versus an individual relationship with God. And the answer you gave kind of goes between both of those, where it seems like you're mentioning first as kind of being born into this kind of covenant community that provides an education, right? Kind of a moral upbringing with these commandments until they're getting to the point where they can kind of reason some of these things out for themselves and then make kind of more educated decisions on exactly what that looks like in their lives to live this covenant that they were kind of born into. Absolutely. And and I think it ties back to what you were talking or what you were asking about a little bit earlier, Jacob, which is that The best part of a bar or bat mitzvah process for me is studying with my student and them asking questions. So, for example, why would God say don't murder? Why would it be okay to kill in something that's outside of murder? And me saying to them, what an amazing question. Let's figure that out. Is that something we think God would say? Is that something we think people would say? What might be the context? And to really invite those kinds of questions, because if all the interpretation is already done, what's our role? right? We have to constantly be trying to interpret and reinterpret. We don't live in the same world that our ancestors lived in. And we get to think of things in completely new and different ways. The global society, the fact that we're on Zoom and that you and I are talking, but fundamentally there are so many people who will be a part of this conversation is not something that our ancestors could have ever dreamt of. And so, of course, the way that we interpret and our conversation and our question is going to be necessary and a little bit different from theirs. And how valuable is that in order to maintain a living tradition? Yeah, that's great. That reminds me of something Latter-day Saint writer put in a little incredible book called Letters to a Young Mormon, Adam Miller. And one of his chapters was on this idea of keeping commandments, kind of individually figuring that out. He kind of brings up the point that nobody has lived the commandments through your body ever, right? right? And nobody will. So there's, there's this kind of individual kind of interpretation, kind of processing of what does this mean? What does this look like? How can I fulfill this in the most meaningful way possible in my current experience, which like you said, is different from when that word was spoken 
100 years, 150 years ago, 2000, 3000 years ago, right? That that's, yeah. that there's this, this kind of invitation to engage. And that's something that I personally really appreciate about the Jewish tradition, kind of broadly speaking, is that invitation to explore, discuss, kind of tease out, maybe push, poke, question, but in a way that's ultimately meant to be kind of edifying, fulfilling the will, the law, the covenant of God. So that's beautiful. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that I love, and I think that what you're citing is also valuable in that is that Rashi, even in his interpretation and his way of looking at this, is going back to Talmud. Me, I'm going back to Rashi and I'm reading it through my eyes, but also through their eyes. And they are not more right than me necessarily. And I want their opinion because clearly they were also in the same endeavor that I am, right? To bolster the Jewish community, to understand what it is that we're supposed to do in the world and how to be the people that we are in the world and the community that we are in the world. And so I want their opinion. And at the same time, if something doesn't fit right, if it doesn't feel right, there is room for our voices as well. And Jewishly, this is something, and it goes back as far as Rabbi Hillel, who I was talking about. Hillel and Shammai had these two very different ways of interpreting the text. And Hillel tended to be more liberal, and Shammai tended to be much more strenuous, stringent in his interpretation. And they would say, Elu ve'elu, devarim Elohim chayim, these and these are the words of the living God. And that this is a machloket l'shem shamayim, that this is an argument for the sake of God. That this is not an argument to put down Hillel, to put down Shammai, but to try and make the world a better place through understanding what we are supposed to do. And that push and pull, that dialectic can help us to make progress. That's great. Yeah, because that was one of the questions that I was going to ask with as you were kind of highlighting those two contradictory or different interpretations of what it meant, you know, how God is approaching Israel with this covenant to frame it in terms of not which one was right or wrong, but in the discussion of both of those, the purpose was oriented toward God is kind of teasing those out, putting them into conversation with each other for the purpose of trying to better understand God, which is not being contained entirely in one or the other, cannot be contained in one or the other interpretation, but kind of through that, get to the heart of what the issue is here. So I think that's a great way to approach how we approach disagreements or different, and I mean disagreements, but different interpretations or applications perhaps in some of our own communities in a fruitful way. Absolutely. And I think in modernity, I guess we're post-modernity these days, that there is this amazing beauty in being able to hold paradox, contradictory stories, contradictory ideas in our heads, and to say yes, like to both of them, right? That, I mean, my own personal interpretation, I don't speak for Judaism, I don't speak for anybody but myself when I say this, is the vastness of God surely has space for things that don't make sense or logic in my own mind or my own heart. And so I want to be able to hold as many of these different ways of relating and understanding as possible. How rigid and arrogant might I be to say that I understand God through one lens? Yeah, good. Something definitely to think about. So one of the audience members asked in relation to talking about if God is offering this, if you do this, God will do why. What do you see there within the tradition of the connection between keeping the commandments and receiving a particular blessing from God, right? So you kind of laid it out as it is there in that passage as kind of a, if you do X, you will get Y. It's kind of a causal relationship. So maybe you can speak a little bit more to that in particular within Jewish tradition of how tied these certain blessings are to specific commandments and how is that even approached, especially in situations perhaps where there's a promised blessing and that doesn't seem to be happening in the life of the individual? Please take that. It's an amazing and complicated and beautiful question, right? So that there are the three main parts of the covenant that God presents, right? From the God side, right? That's that Israel will be a great nation, meaning numerous, that we will be blessed, meaning that we will have bounty and other nations shall bless themselves by our name. And then the third is the land, which I have to say in the contemporary world is a very controversial thing to talk about the land of Israel versus the country of Israel and all of that sort of thing. And the flip side of that is our obligation is to the commandments is that we say that if we will be God's people, then we will receive that part of the covenant. 
do we follow the commandments? This is a hugely complex question, right? Because to say there are 613 commandments and do we follow them? And then to realize that the Talmud interpretation makes what we call a fence around the Torah so that the commandments are actually somewhat more expansive. And at the same time, we would say we never change the commandments. We only reinterpret them. How do we handle it when it doesn't seem like things aren't panning out? Well, I mean, I think we can always say, right, we're not upholding our side. I think that's a really dangerous way of interpreting things by saying that it's a one-to-one relationship, which is fundamentally a Deuteronomic way of understanding the Torah. And what I mean when I say that is that Deuteronomy says, if you keep my commandments, good things will happen. And if you don't keep my commandments, bad things will happen. And it's very sort of black and white about this sort of thing. And there are scholars, maybe you among them, who argue that the book of Job is there precisely to contradict that, that Job does everything right and that it still doesn't work out for him. And that perhaps, once again, we can explain this by the difference between a covenant with a people versus a covenant with a person. There is a quote, and I forget which movie it is, to be honest. The quote says, if you haven't gotten to the happy ending, maybe it's because you're not at the end. And that's one way, I think, of understanding it, right? That the covenant is not fulfilled because we are constantly living it. There are a lot of other sections in the prophets that talk about You know, so even if you do the sacrifices, if you're not being kind to your neighbors, if you're not being a generous person, if you're not taking care of the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the needy, then you're not following the intent of the commandments and that there is an aspect of that in it. Fundamentally, I think, and I think my tradition understands it this way, that if we're doing it because we expect something from God in the long run, then we're doing it wrong. We live these commandments because we want to live in a world where people are taken care of, where we are in a social contract, where we know that everybody has enough, where we can be content and fulfilled, not because we're waiting for God to fulfill God's side of the covenant, rather that through our behavior, we are being God's hands and trying to make it the best world we can make it. Yeah, that's beautifully put there. Thank you. So kind of along those same lines, one of the audience members is asking, you know, what sort of miracles or kind of positive spiritual changes have you seen in your congregation over the years? You've been a rabbi for a while and you're a third generation rabbi, right? So from the kind of engaging with these words of God in the traditionally called the Ten Commandments, what sort of positive change have you noticed by an honest kind of engagement with or wrestling with or kind of adoption of and championing these sorts of these commandments? Fascinating question. I haven't thought about it that way. And I'm looking at it and I'm wondering, right, from a strictly traditional Jewish perspective, right, if I were looking at this from a very orthodox perspective, I don't know that I know anybody that follows every one of these commandments, to be honest with you, right? I don't know that it is always possible for somebody to do that, right? I know that it is possible to endeavor, right, to endeavor to keep Shabbat, to endeavor to always be honest when it comes to our neighbors, to endeavor not to covet. I live in Northern New Jersey. Covetous is a big deal around here, to be honest with you, right? And I think that people who God wrestle, which is what Yisrael means, people who struggle to be the best versions of themselves are people who do keep these things in mind and who do try to engage with them. I think that these are people who are humble. I think that these are people who seek out the best in other people and themselves. And I'd like to think that these are people who are not jaded. And I think that those are all kinds of blessings, a humility, the ability. Look, I always, I love looking at both sides, both the sarcasm and the earnestness in the texts, because I don't think that they're meant to be taken totally seriously. I think they're meant to spur us in different ways and to be interpreted in different ways. And I think that people who seriously engage in the text, who seriously engage in the work, that they have better lives, they have better relationships, and they have better self-understanding. And I think that maybe that is miraculous, right? That we go out and we seek, and maybe we do yoga, or maybe we try to read, you know, all of the great texts, and maybe we try to better ourselves. And fundamentally, Keeping perspective and what is ours and what is God's, what is the community's, what is our job, all of those things come out of this text 
and it can be a guide to living a good life. That's great. And so kind of for our last question to kind of now direct that more personally towards you, what do you find kind of most inspiring or moving about the things that we've spoken about, right? With Israel at Sinai receiving these commandments, what kind of stands out most to you and kind of motivates you and inspires you? So one of the things about being a rabbi is that it's not like, I don't know, I have a special soul or there's anything necessarily fundamentally different about my makeup than my congregation or my congregants, right? I made a choice at one point in my life that I was going to study Torah and I was going to engage with it daily and be charged to encourage other people to engage with it. And the inspiration for me is when I'm talking to my congregants, certainly that we were all there, that some people had a better view and some people were standing further back. Somebody was standing at the back, you know, somebody was standing right at the front, but, but the, we were all there. And what my purpose is, is to draw that out of people and to connect them to it. And maybe it's not just the Jewish community, but it's everybody who relates to this text. And so I have this blessing that every time I read this text with someone new, I get to read it with new eyes. And that every time I get to engage in and study with it, I get to hopefully inspire someone to look at it differently, to step up to their relationships with people and with the divine in a new and a beautiful way. And that's what I do every day. And that's fundamentally one of the most exciting things I can do. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for sharing some of that <laughs> insight and the time that you've spent in these scriptures with us. We, yeah, we really appreciate you sharing that with us. I did have a question from the audience if would be willing to share your slides with me. I can make those available. Would that be possible? Certainly. Do me a favor, turn them into PDFs first. We'll do. Got it. <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. Okay, great. Yes, yeah, so we'll make those available in the next email that we send out for the foundation. So if you haven't, dear audience, signed up to join our newsletter, you can do that by just visiting woodsofoundation.org and it'll pop up on your screen automatic to sign up for our regular newsletters. And I'll include a link to that in the next one that we have coming out. So that's great. Thank you for being willing to share that as well. And for the audience, thank you all for joining us on this Come Follow Me interfaith conversation with Rabbi Ilana. And I mentioned earlier that you can rewatch this event or listen to it as a podcast at woodsofoundation.org. And as a reminder, the, the Woodso Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit. It's entirely funded by our generous audience members. So if you find what we're doing here valuable and meaningful, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at woodsofoundation.org forward slash donate. So for our next conversation that we'll be having, it'll be May 22nd. We'll discuss the Book of Ruth with Dr. Ora Prouser, head of the Academy for Jewish Religion in New York. So please come back for that. Again, thanks to Rabbi Ilana for sharing your insights with us. And thanks to you, audience, again, for joining us. Goodbye.